Hello and welcome to Jones Day Talks Healthcare. I'm your host, Ann Hollenbeck, and today I've invited Kathy Livingston from our Washington, D.C. office to join me. Kathy is one of Jones Day's key leads on the Affordable Care Act. Welcome, Kathy. Thank you very much, Ann. It's great to be with you. I thought the Affordable Care Act was a great topic for us to discuss today, Anne, because once again, it's moving to center stage and public attention because of some litigation that is now pending and uh, is getting to a critical juncture. And we know that we got a lot of attention to the Affordable Care Act last year when Congress was the principal venue. We're now moving back to the courts, but I wanted to talk with you some about what's happening because I think many of our listeners may be curious and interested as it once again comes into the press and the headlines. You're right, Kathy. It's definitely going to be hitting the headlines. And I know today we're going to talk about two different happenings within the Affordable Care Act arena. Let's kick it off by talking about the federal litigation in the state of Texas. Down in Texas, as you may know, and earlier this year, 20 states and two individuals sued the federal government And they are alleging that the Affordable Care Act in its entirety is no longer constitutionally valid, and they are seeking both a preliminary injunction and a declaratory judgment stating that the Affordable Care Act needs to be rendered null and void because of this constitutionality problem. Their argument is staked on the fact that Congress, at the end of last year, reduced the individual mandate penalty to zero dollars. That's right. I remember that. That's right. It was part of the tax legislation that was enacted in December. Now, the penalty doesn't go down to zero dollars until the beginning of 2019. It remains in effect for this year. But the argument being made in this complaint by these states and these individuals is that the individual mandate was upheld, as many people will remember, in the NFIB versus Sebelius case in 2012 on the grounds that it was a valid exercise of the taxing power. And once there is no more tax, there is no more valid exercise of the taxing power. And then they further argue that you can't sever the individual mandate from the rest of the law. Therefore, the whole thing goes down once the penalty reaches zero. Wow, going for the whole enchilada on this one. So how did the Department of Justice respond? I mean, I I know that that our current administration favors repeal of the ACA, but this is litigation, you know, over the whole thing, and and that the whole thing wasn't obviously repealed. Indeed. So the Department of Justice had to make a decision on behalf of the, the federal defendants, and they filed a memorandum on June the 7th, taking the position that they agreed with the plaintiffs but did not think that the entire law went down. They agreed that the individual mandate is no longer constitutionally valid once the penalty goes to zero, but rather than saying that the entire law could not be severed, they argue or take the position that only the provisions relating to guaranteed issue of insurance and community rating are tied together inextricably with the individual mandate. And so when the individual mandate goes down, those provisions go down as well. But the rest of the law that covers things like Medicaid expansion, changes to Medicare, a whole variety of other taxes that were enacted, the rest of the law remains in effect. 
At the same time that they filed this memorandum, the Attorney General wrote a letter to Congress because it's a highly unusual thing for the Department of Justice not to defend a duly enacted statute. Oh, got it. Got it. Uh, That letter turns out to be pretty important because while the memorandum just refers to guaranteed issue and community rating, the letter gets down to the granular level of saying which specific provisions of the law the Department of Justice believes cannot be severed from the individual mandate. And that list of provisions will affect things like the guaranteed availability of insurance to people who have pre-existing conditions, the bar on carving out coverage for pre-existing conditions, the bar on setting premiums based on health status factors, and community rating, which in the individual and small group markets under current law limits the premiums to varying with age, geography, and tobacco use only. Wow. So if the plaintiffs prevailed, what would this mean for people who have chronic health conditions? It could have a pretty significant effect. The litigation really goes to the heart of the protections for individuals who have pre-existing conditions. Until the ACA was enacted, people in that state who'd had past health problems or ongoing chronic conditions, as many Americans do, who did not have employer-sponsored health coverage that they continued from job to job, often found they couldn't buy health insurance at all in the individual market because insurers would not sell to them if they had pre-existing conditions. Or perhaps they could purchase insurance, but they had to pay prohibitive premiums because the premiums could be set to take into account their health status. Or they could buy coverage, and maybe it would be affordable, but the coverage would not apply to any care or treatment they would need associated with their pre-existing condition. And pre-existing conditions could cover a wide array of things. There was no single definition from state to state. They could range from chronic health problems like diabetes or heart disease to acute episodes like having had a cesarean section or a bout of depression. Wow. Wow. Not ideal. It was one of the fundamental reasons that uh, the prior administration and Congress was so intent on enacting a version of healthcare reform because there were so many people who were finding it extraordinarily difficult to get health insurance at all for the healthcare needs they knew they had. What about HIPAA? Oh, that's a good point you're raising, Anne, because even if the ACA were struck down as unconstitutional, HIPAA would remain in the law. As you may recall, HIPAA put a number of protections for pre-existing conditions into place particularly in connection with employer-sponsored coverage years before the Affordable Care Act was enacted. The way that works generally is that if you have existing employer coverage, you can get a certificate of creditable coverage that you can take with you to your next job. And as long as you don't have a break in coverage of longer than 63 days, the next employer will continue to cover you for the pre-existing condition And even if the break is a little bit longer or you have other kinds of circumstances, there is a limit to how long an employer can exclude coverage for a pre-existing condition. So employer-sponsored coverage would not be as seriously affected if the ACA were struck down in this litigation, but we'll have to wait and see exactly what happens to know where the effects are felt. So 
How does this work as a procedural matter? What, what will the court potentially do? Well, as I mentioned, when it was filed originally in February, the states were seeking a preliminary injunction, and the standards for a preliminary injunction would generally require that there be some kind of imminent harm. Since the individual mandate penalty doesn't go to zero dollars until January, the Department of Justice, when they filed, suggested to the court that rather than looking at this as a case seeking a preliminary injunction, that the court instead look at it as a motion requesting summary judgment and go straight to a final decision on a declaratory judgment and possibly a permanent injunction. The court seems to have taken them up on the suggestion because it filed an order asking the parties whether they had any objections to proceeding all the way to summary judgment. And the court has scheduled a hearing, which is still styled as a hearing on a preliminary injunction because that's what the initial complaint was seeking. Wednesday, September the 5th. Okay. Well, if if the Department of Justice, on behalf of the federal defendants, agrees with the 20 states who brought the suit, is there anybody arguing to uphold the Affordable Care Act in its entirety? Yes. There are 16 states in the District of Columbia that filed a motion seeking to intervene in the case as defendants, and the court granted their motion back in May. They are arguing energetically. Good, uh, (laughs) in my opinion. That the ACA remains an entirely constitutionally valid statute that reducing the tax penalty to zero has absolutely no effect on any other provision in the law, including but not limited to guaranteed issue community rating and all of the other protections that are in there for people with pre-existing conditions. In addition to that group of interveners, there are approximately 30 healthcare and patient groups that have filed amicus briefs. Most of them, I would say, are arguing together with the states that are defending the law, though some are taking the other side. But these include major groups like the American Medical Association, the American Hospital Association, America's Health Insurance Plans. There are also law professors who are weighing in a group of four of them who explicitly acknowledge that their political views and uh, legal philosophies really span the spectrum from the most liberal to the most conservative, filed together on the specific legal issue of when various provisions of a statute are severable. When does a court get to decide that striking down one provision of a statute necessarily takes with it other provisions in a statute? And they argued, it seems to make a lot of sense in this case, that it's pretty hard here for a court to step in and infer that Congress meant to take down these other provisions when last December Congress was looking very specifically at the individual mandate and only the individual mandate made a very specific change to that provision knowing, and there's floor debate that uh, illustrates this, that other provisions would be left in place. There was debate, various members of Congress raised the possibility of making other changes, and the only change that was enacted was the change to the individual mandate. So these professors are saying there's really no severability question to be decided. Congress quite deliberately decided here. This is very different than a case where Congress has enacted in the first instance a statute with lots of different provisions, and then a court comes along to pull one stick out of the bundle. Well, it seems pretty meaningful that these four came together and agree on that point. So, Kathy, when might we know 
what's going to happen with this case? Well, that will very much depend on Judge Reed O'Connor and when he comes to a conclusion and issues a decision. I have no doubt that he will be keenly aware (laughs) that this case and this decision would have the potential to have a significant impact on many people and on insurance markets more broadly. Exactly when he'll decide remains a decision that only he can make, but I'm sure that there will be very constant attention (laughs) to that clerk's office waiting for that decision to come forward. So I know some senators have introduced a bill that they say would preserve the pre-existing condition protections even if the, the whole act is struck down. Yes, that's exactly right, Anne. Ten Republican senators introduced a bill. The bill number is S3388. As always with the Affordable Care Act, there is a political dimension that uh, moves alongside the legal dimension. It seems that they are particularly concerned that the impact of the litigation, if the plaintiffs are successful, could be the elimination of all kinds of protections for pre-existing conditions. And they do not want to be associated with that consequence, it appears. So they have introduced legislation that, as they describe it, would preserve protections for pre-existing conditions. And their legislation, if it were enacted, would indeed either restore if they've been struck down or duplicate if they've been left in place provisions that require issuance of insurance coverage to individuals with pre-existing conditions and prohibit exclusions from coverage for those pre-existing conditions. They would also ban setting premiums based on health status factors. However, they don't completely restore everything that's in the ACA. And one thing that they don't reinstate is community rating. That's the rule that says when you're setting premiums in the individual and small group market, age, geography, and tobacco use are the only factors that could be taken into account. So that would mean that, for instance, if you're a woman who survived breast cancer, you could still get insurance, but they might be able to set a higher premium because you're a woman buying a policy rather than a man buying a policy. Policy premiums could also vary for things like the occupation that you pursue and the geography factors that could come into place might get down to the level of individual city blocks or neighborhoods as opposed to whole zip codes. So it would, if it were enacted, restore some of what's at stake in the litigation, but it would not completely reverse all the changes that the plaintiffs are arguing and should be made, nor the ones that the federal defendants have supported. Kathy, thank you so much for all of these details. Certainly, we will all be watching uh, the outcome of this. Let's move to another important Affordable Care Act item. The Department of Health and Human Services has been actively seeking to change insurance markets through regulations. We had a prior podcast that touched on this in connection with association health plans. But tell us, what are some of the latest developments from DHHS? This summer... Not only did we get the final rule on association health plans that you discussed on the prior episode, we also got a final rule on short-term limited duration insurance. This is the kind of insurance that was long intended to cover those short periods in between longer stints of coverage, such as may occur. I was going to say like between jobs or going from school. Um, to starting a job, et cetera? Exactly. Think of the student who graduates in June, might not starting a job until August 1st or September 1st, and just wants health coverage for that gap period. 
both of these rules, when you put them together, they're now final and they will go into effect reasonably soon. Association health plans and short-term limited duration insurance are going to change the complexion, very likely, of insurance markets because they allow a much greater variety of coverage to be offered and both the association health plans and most especially the short-term limited duration insurance will not have many of the features that are required for the qualified health plans that you can purchase on the exchanges or that have been required generally for health insurance coverage under the Affordable Care Act. Up to what now. are some examples, Kathy, just to, just to put some context to those types of things that can be left out? Oh, certainly. Well, let's take short-term limited duration insurance. If you can buy it at all, because it's not guaranteed issue, the insurance company can turn you down because of a pre-existing condition or your age or anything else that they so choose that's uh, not a violation of another aspect of law. They can also set the premium based on health status factors. They can put annual limits on the benefits they'll pay out. They can put lifetime limits on the benefits they'll pay out. There's no requirement that they cover essential health benefits. They can leave out large aspects of coverage like maternity or prescription drugs or mental health care. They don't have to cover things like clinical trials, and they don't have to have things like a a limit, a maximum out-of-pocket limit, so they can set the cost sharing at very high levels. It does provide some amount of coverage, but consumers will have to ask a lot of questions and probe very carefully to understand exactly what they're getting. It's likely to appear attractive because the premiums would be substantially lower than the premiums for a qualified health plan or for other kinds of health coverage that might be available. But it is undoubtedly a situation where you're going to get what you pay for. If you're a young, very healthy person, you may well think that this is a good option for you because it provides you with some level of health coverage. But if you are so unfortunate as to experience a really difficult diagnosis or to have a fairly serious accident and need a lot of health care, you may discover that the coverage for which you have paid is not giving you the protection that you would want. So what will the addition of these plans do to the overall insurance markets? Is this a helpful thing? That's probably a matter of perspective. Uh, The administration, in putting forward both the short-term limited duration plans and the association health plan rule, has emphasized its desire to increase the choice that's available to consumers, to give them more options, and in particular, to give them lower cost options. Insurance, though, of course, depends very much on a pool of individuals, a risk pool, where most of the people who are paying into the risk pool have minimal amounts of health care expenditures, and a very limited number need substantial health care or have very serious problems that require extensive health care. And it's that pooling that makes the economics of the health insurance work. The individuals who go into the short-term limited duration insurance would be coming out of the pool that would otherwise be assembled for the qualified health plans and the more comprehensive kinds of coverage that it provides. And because the people most likely to take the short-term limited duration plans are the younger and healthier people, that'll have an adverse effect on the pool that's left for the more comprehensive coverage, meaning that if you're the kind of person who has a pre-existing condition or a chronic health condition and short-term limited duration insurance can't really meet your needs, the insurance that you are guaranteed to get may start to become more expensive. 
Got it. Well, so states are primary regulators of insurance markets. What are what are the states saying when it comes to these types of coverages? That's a good question to be asking, Anne, because different states are saying different things. Some states will not allow short-term limited duration plans that are tied in any way to health status to be sold at all in their states, Massachusetts, New Jersey, New York, or in this camp. And then the states vary as to how long a short-term plan can last and still count as short-term and be accepted from other rules that might also apply. And a number of states will not go to the full nearly 12 months that's allowed under this new federal rule. This new federal rule says short-term is anything short of 365 days, anything short of a full year. But a number of states are saying that a short-term plan is something that lasts no more than, say, three months. Other states will allow uh, anything that's allowed under the federal rule, and then there are a mix of things in the middle. So you'll need to know what is available in the particular state where you live. And I'm very sympathetic to the individuals who are often in the admitting department or who are advising patients at a hospital. I see the providers. Right. And I know in your practice, don't you encounter the folks who are on site at the hospital or health system and the patients are asking for help, trying to understand what should I do, which coverage should I pick, or this is the coverage I have, how will it work with what I need? It's going to be really challenging, really Uh, challenging, because this is getting more complicated. Indeed. And if you think about providers who live at the intersection of multiple states, here in the District of Columbia, if you are working out of a hospital in D.C., you may well have patients who live in Maryland and live in Virginia. And so then you have three different jurisdictions that may well have three different sets of rules. So knowing exactly what your patient has in their health coverage is going to be quite challenging. Let's move to the association health plans. That adds another layer of complexity. Tell us about that. Well, as you no doubt discussed a bit in your prior episode, what this rule does is allow associations that have a bona fide purpose that goes beyond offering a health plan to have employers as members and then offer a health plan that can be considered to be offered by a single employer. The net effect of that is since each of the member employers would have a certain number of employees, when you pull them all together and treat them as one, the plan that the association is offering gets to be treated as a plan in the large group market, and that gives it a lot more flexibility because plans in the large group market, while they have to continue offering protections for pre-existing conditions and they can't discriminate on health status factors and they have to provide coverage without annual limits or lifetime limits, They can use what's called experience rating rather than community rating, so they can take into account the health experience of the population they're covering in setting the premiums, and they also don't have to offer essential health benefits. So with some of those additional flexibilities, you can offer things that cost less, but of course they also may have less comprehensive coverage. Got it. So small employers may be attracted to lower premiums and join these associations. But what do you see as the long-term impact? Well, once again, I'm looking at the courts to give me a signal about potential long-term impact. There are 11 states in the District of Columbia that are now suing the federal government in federal district court 
saying that association health plans have a record of suffering from fraud and deceptive marketing, and that by finalizing this rule, the federal government has increased the pressure on the states and required them to divert resources in order to provide more enforcement in their insurance markets because they're very worried that small employers will be tempted by plans that aren't really what they represent themselves as being or that some of these associations, notwithstanding what the insurance regulators try to do, will not meet the full solvency promises that they make to the public. Are there other groups objecting to these rules as well? Certainly, the advocates for people with pre-existing conditions are also concerned about what this does to the risk pool because it will pull more people out of the small group market and put them in a different pool, and the people it pulls out are more likely to be those healthier people. I think it's most interesting, though, to see the states come at this directly, given the interest that they have in um, making sure that the markets are transparent and honest. What about city government? Are they weighing in on this rule? Oh, I think you must be mentioning, Anne, now a very interesting case that was brought this summer by the cities of Columbus, Ohio, Cincinnati, Ohio, Baltimore, Maryland, and Chicago, Illinois, along with two individuals. And they're attacking not just the association health plan rule, but all of the different actions being taken by the Trump administration with respect to the Affordable Care Act. They're making the claim that there is um, a violation of the president's constitutional duty to take care that the laws are faithfully executed and a violation of the Administrative Procedure Act because the decisions that are being made are arbitrary and capricious. Hmm. And they're seeking a declaratory judgment and an injunction to stop all of the different actions that have been taken by the administration because they claim that the administration is promoting insurance that does not comply with the ACA's requirements, including insurance that does not cover pre-existing conditions. It's a pretty, uh, pretty sweeping set of claims, pretty intense, but it's getting some attention again from some law school professors who say there is some real bite or teeth to this claim under the Constitution's Take Care Clause. There are a number of cabinet secretaries who are named as defendants as well. We'll have to see where that case goes. It's in district court in Maryland. Well, fascinating. A lot happening. And Kathy, I thank you so much. It's been great catching up with you on the Affordable Care Act. I've certainly learned a lot, and I so appreciate your insights. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. If anyone in our audience wants to reach Kathy for more information, please don't hesitate to email her. She is clivingston at jonesday.com. And as always, you can reach me, Anne Hollenbeck, at ahollenbeck at jonesday.com. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for listening to Jones Day Talks. Comments heard on Jones Day Talks should not be construed as legal advice regarding any specific facts or circumstances. The opinions expressed on Jones Day Talks are those of lawyers appearing on the program and do not necessarily reflect those of the firm. For more information, please visit jonesday.com.